this is our Simon Dong reading group. We're returning after a couple weeks break. We're at um, page 144 in the translation. Um, so we're on part four uh, about invention. Uh, we're just in the opening of that part. Um, um, so we've been talking about uh, the behavior of a detour um, in, in various uh, circumstances. So like uh, the sort of Simplest uh, example of this is like um, you have a um, uh, like a, a rat in a maze. It learns a certain path to reach the food at the end of the maze, and then you change the maze. You put like a um, I don't know a, a wall where before it used to be able to run straight through, and then the rat has to learn. Okay, I can go down this other path and and reach the maze, uh, reach the uh, the end of the maze, and reach the food, um, and. Uh, so don't point out that in in the wild, many animals are capable of doing this kind of behavior. Like uh, an example that he, I think he doesn't speci specify the animal here, um, but in other texts he he mentions the same example and he says that's a jaguar. Um, so in the wild, it's capable of um, tracking its prey and then um, realizing that it has to cross the river to to um, follow the the path of the prey animal, uh, but then it can backtrack and find a, a spot on the river shore where it, uh, the river is narrower or, or less deep or whatever. Um, and uh, it can cross the river and then go back to where it was and pick up the trail again. So it's taking a detour um, to reach the, 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 uh, the trail that it has to make to get across the river. Uh, but then in, a, in an experimental setting, so in a laboratory, um, when you have a you know a simpler task of like you know getting around a maze and and taking a different path through a maze, the animal turns out to not be capable of um, you know taking this detour. Uh, and so for Simon Don, this capacity to um, to take a detour. Um, so this is a sort of most basic form of invention. Um, it's um, it's you know the, the animal has to uh, sort of find a way of reconciling um, the um, desire or the, the goal of you know, reaching the food at the end of the maze and the um, obstacle, the, the fact that you know, my path to the maze is blocked. So it has to sort of come up with a way of making these two um, incompatible bits compatible with each other. Um, and uh, for Simon Don, this sort of behavior of invention is not something that is sort of... Um, inherent in the animal as an isolated entity. It's part of this animal environment interaction. And so this is why we see that in the, the laboratory setting, the jaguar is not able to perform this detour um, operation. And he, he specifically says that um, it has to do with the uh, relation of an animal to its territory. Uh, so many animals, uh, you know, especially mammals, uh, have a, um, a sort of territory behavior. So they um uh have like maybe a nest or a burrow or whatever is like where they sleep and then they have a certain region around that nest um that they consider their territory and they will defend it against other animals of the same species and uh in this territory they have um they they have this sort of detailed knowledge of the layout of the of the environment so they know wh where the paths are where where to get to water where to hide so um anything like that and so on their territory, they're capable of performing all these detours and sort of uh, creative uh, 
uh, inventive processes of thinking, uh, whereas in a laboratory setting, they're completely disoriented. They, they don't have those um, reference points or landmarks to, uh, to work off of. And so they, they turn out not to be capable of the detour behavior. Uh, and so this detour or invention and creativity, whatever you want to call it, is uh, a product not just of the animal, but of the animal uh, territory interaction. Um, so, uh, so this is, I think, what we saw the last couple times. Um, uh, and, and he gives a few different examples of, of this um, um, sort of interaction of the animal with its environment and, uh, and how it's capable of um, different types of creative behavior as a result of um, that interaction. Uh, okay, so I think um, that's about where we are. So if I can get someone to read from uh, page 144. I can read. Uh, we're at yes, right? Uh, yeah, the paragraph break. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, but on condition of specifying that it is a detour implying a representation, an image more than a direct perception. Uh, this type of detour implies the representation of effects that are di distant from actions, quote unquote, foresight and the extended retention of a direction of activity, according to experiments by Hobhaus and Biren Dehan. The perception of an end inhibits actions which deviate from that end. Uh, Lewin has indicated the difficulty young children have approaching a goal backward, for instance, trying to sit on a chair. Even though backward walking belongs to, the defensive behavior, to defensive behavior in situations generating fear, Conversely, backward walking is a spontaneous behavior among certain load-pulling species, ants and spider wasps. From this point of view, we should note that there are different species of detour depending on whether the path involves an, an alternating proximity or distance from the goal or displays instead progressive and continuous characteristics. In a case where a spiral chicken wire is spiraled around a goal, an animal will, if it is outside the wire, follow a continuous and progressive detour through the spiral. But if the animal is inside and the goal outside, the obstacle presents maxima and minima that are increasingly pronounced as the overall distance to the goal diminishes. A cat can solve the former but not the latter problem. W and K MacDougall attribute success and detour problems to an anticipatory intuition similar to the Einstein insight noticed by Kohler in various types of tasks, particularly in labyrinth learning with visual cues. The presence of the Einsicht uh, reveals itself through a sudden increase in success rates, thus a discontinuity in the error curve over time. Experiments with detours have been attempted on a large number, number of animal species. Experiments with monkeys are now classic, as well as those with hens, which encounter much more difficulty than monkeys or dogs with the detour problem. Fischl presents presented tortoises with a detour problem by offering them a piece of worm behind a plexiglass partition. Success comes all at once. A similar apparatus was used by Pierron with, an, with octopi and by Bierens de Han on the same animal. The latter let an octopus see a crab up close, a glass partition invisible underwater, and running halfway up the aquarium prevented the direct capture of the crab. When the stimulation was visual, what stops the octopus is the tactile and motor obstacle of the glass partition. Even if by chance one of the octopus's tentacles brushed the crab, there was no in integration of this tactile sensorial datum with the initial problem posed in terms of visual stimuli. 
the tactile datum is nonetheless an indication that might trigger the solution of the detour problem, since the tentacle did effectuate a detour that enabled the capture of the crab. This observation is of great interest for the theoretical study of the detour as an invention. It shows that the perceptual integration of data from several senses is an important adjunct in the discovery of solutions. Um, the concrete monosensorial perceptions must be transcended by a centralized activity of synthesis in order for the intuition of the solution to appear. We recoup here, even within a perceptual situation, the local activity that serves as a receptive system for sensorial signals. The cognitive context in which the detour situation may arise is more complex than the function of sense organs as receptors. When it can develop as a mode of multisensorial compatibility, the image and active system of the reception of sensorial data holds a reserve of solutions for concrete invention. In the same way, a roadmap is always already reserve of is an always already reserve of itineraries. Um, uh, we now understand why the prior organization of a territory through multiple and various explorations is one of the conditions for the resolution of detour problems. For these provide the opportunity of developing images that render data from the various senses compatible. The possible detours pre-exist in the image, and the more precise the image is, the faster they are discovered. Moreover, the detour as a concrete invention finds a reciprocal form in the shortcut, which emerges as an improvement of behavior. For example, in the case of learning a labyrinth with several solutions where it can also occur as a sudden invention. So yeah, I, I can see why Simon Don likes these um, detour puzzles as an example, because they present this disparation between this disparation of the obstacle and the goal that must be overcome to um, result in an invention or at least a solution to the detour. Uh, and which, if the if the desperation is too great, then the animal is um, unable to, you know, resolve it into a solution, like the cat with the uh, second type of chicken wire maze. Yeah. So there's a few different um, conditions, I guess, that are necessary to to you know allow an animal to perform this kind of invention um, and and find the solution to the detour problem. So, like in the case of the maze. Um, so you have the one, so the, I mean, Simon Don describes this very quickly, but like the idea is you have one type of maze where the, the goal, the food or whatever is at the center and the animal is at the outside and it's a, a spiral form. So the animal, um, uh, as it uh, goes around the spiral, it, um, it has to take detours. It can't, you know, take the direct route right towards the center uh, because of the walls of the maze or the wire. Um, so it has to take a detour uh, to some extent, but the what allows the animal to solve this problem is the fact that the detour is smaller and smaller as the animal gets closer and closer to the goal, right? So each loop of the spiral is is smaller, and so the animal is um, uh, you know getting closer and closer or taking a smaller and smaller detour the closer it gets to the goal. Whereas the other type of maze is the animal is at the center of the spiral and the the goal is outside the spiral or on the edge of the spiral. And uh, in the case of cats, at least in, in that experiment, they weren't able to solve this problem. And, and the reason is that um, as the animal is getting closer and closer to the goal, they actually have to take bigger and bigger detours. So it's, it's like um, the, the sort of um, tendency or desire to 
go directly towards the goal that the animal has to repress um, to take this detour is getting stronger and stronger. Um, so like you have to sort of, it, it takes more and more, um, I don't know, willpower might not be the right word, but it, it has a more and more difficult time of um, repressing this desire to go in the direction of the goal that it can see um, uh, as it gets closer and closer to the goal. Um, and so it, the animal ends up, um, instead of taking the detour and taking the whole loop around the spiral that it needs to take to get to the edge, it ends up just sort of um, going back and forth or, or sort of sticking to the, the closest point of the spiral to, um, to the, the goal uh, instead of you know, taking the whole loop and, and moving away from the goal in order to get closer to it uh, later. Um, so that's, this is one condition is that the animal has to sort of repress the desire to, um, or it has to be able to repress this desire to go directly towards the goal uh, so that it has to understand or have some sort of grasp that by actually going away from the goal, I am overcoming an obstacle and, um, and uh, getting myself ultimately closer to the goal than I would otherwise. And so depending on the animal, the situation, um, you know, and again, this probably depends on whether it's a laboratory setting or on the animal's own territory, um, you know, the animal may or may not be able to solve this problem. Uh, and then the other condition that Simondo mentions here is um, sensory integration. So um, uh, this octopus example is one where the octopus can see the um, the target, the the crab or whatever it was. Um, you can see the the object that it wants to get, um, uh, and it might even, you know, just by accident, um, one of its tentacles might um, go over the the uh, barricade in the cage in the aquarium um, and uh, touch the crab um, just by accident. But it's not capable of. Um, at least in this setting, of integrating, you know, the fact that I can see the crab here and I can feel something on my tentacle here and those two things coincide. And so my tentacle is actually touching the crab. Um, it can't um, perform that sort of integration of the two sensory modalities and use that as the basis to say, OK, now I need to um, go around this obstacle and, and then I can get the crab. Um, uh, so again, the, the, this is a sort of second condition that the animal has to solve. It has to be able to integrate information coming from different sources to be able to realize, um, okay, I need to take a detour to get to my goal. Um, and so again, this is a kind of um, a kind of uh, creativity in the sense that the the integration of these two pieces of information is not uh, something given in the situation in advance. Um, I mean, in, in a a sort of laboratory setting where the experimenter is controlling everything. Of course, the, the experimenter has an idea of what the solution to the problem is. But in in sort of natural settings, there's no um, there's no like pre-given solution to the problem. The animal has to actually um, creatively this you know determine or discover um, how to put these two pieces of information together, how to make this connection, um, and what the you know appropriate response to that. Um, to that situation is uh, so. This is why it's a kind of invention, even if it. I mean, it's not like um, a sort of. Uh, um, it, it's it's a, a very limited invention in certain respects, but uh, it still requires. It's it's more than just a, a sort of stimulus response type of um, um, behavior of this organism. 
the bit about the octopus uh, makes me wonder, um, I mean, because this is something that probably was not well known or, or recognized in Simondo's time, but they are actually, uh, or at least some species of octopus are quite intelligent. Um, um, you know, they are capable of creative behavior, problem solving, and so on. Um, so it makes me wonder if this laboratory setting, you know, um, in, in the way that Simon Don describes is sort of limiting the, the animal's capacity to, um, you know, execute the, the kinds of um, problem solving that it would be able to do in a, in a natural setting. Um, and so even something like just the fact of, you know, being captured and in a, an aquarium as opposed to um, swimming freely in the ocean, um, there's a sort of affective side of the... Um, laboratory setting that the animal is probably scared um and uh rather than sort of you know in a, a calm environment or uh environment where it feels safe and uh at home and so this sort of affective side of things also interferes with the um i mean i'm sure even for humans we can we're all familiar with the phenomenon of being like um frozen by fear or you know stage fright and things like that where you sort of recognize that you're supposed to do something, but the fear of making a mistake is so powerful that you um, uh, are not capable of executing that um, that behavior. Uh, and so we can imagine uh, that there might be something similar going on with the octopus, where it um, the sort of affective side of captivity, um, and the the fear or disorientation or whatever, um, is overpowering the capacity to solve problems. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well. Like. If you, if I were captured and you know put in a strange laboratory, I would probably be easier to stump with, like obstacle puzzles as well. Yeah, and and like I mean, yeah, if you, if you just sort of kidnap someone and uh, you know start giving them math problems or whatever, like they're probably not going to be like that effective at solving the problems, even if in a um, in like uh, a setting where they feel much more comfortable, they might you know not have any problem solving uh, you know the equations or whatever you give them um so like yeah just the the sort of confidence yeah exactly and then so you, you kidnap someone uh you you know deprive them of sleep or give them weird food that they never had before or whatever um and then three days later you you sort of like you know give them these math problems and and try to see whether they can uh, solve them or not and then when they fail you say oh we, you know this person can't uh, can't do math um well, maybe that's not exactly the right conclusion to draw from that um, uh, sort of experiment in when they're in this very unnatural situation or a situation that is very stressful and um, uh, you know emotionally difficult for that person. Um, um, and you know, I don't think there's any reason to to think that it's different with animals. That you know, the type of stress that a laboratory setting involves is probably um, similar, uh, has a similar effect on other animals in terms of, you know, making it harder for them to perform the types of activities that they would do in a, a less stressful setting. Um, and, and, um, I think more recently, the last couple of decades, there's been more, um, more attempts to, uh, sort of invest, allow animals to demonstrate their, um, capacities in a more natural setting, uh, as opposed to these sort of, um, sterile lab environments, you know, rats in a maze or something like that. Um, uh, and, and so a lot of cases where earlier studies had shown that, you know, this type of animal is not capable of solving this kind of problem. It turns out if you sort of modified the, 
the problem that you know make the maze more uh, realistic, more more similar to the animal's natural environment, then the animal is in fact capable of solving the problem. So it's not it's not like you know navigation. Uh, it's not that the animal is not capable of navigation. It's that um, the setting of this sort of weird laboratory environment um, is is too overwhelming or too um, stressful for the animal, and it's it's not capable of exercising its navigation capacities. Uh, so yeah, it's always difficult in um, animal psychology or or studies of animal behavior to sort of figure out what the correct conditions are in which an animal can perform a certain type of behavior. Um, and what, you know, if, if the animal doesn't exhibit the behavior you're, you're looking for, it's always hard to infer, you know, um, this is what, you know, it, it's because the animal is lacking this psychological capacity as opposed to um, the setting is not suitable for the animal to exercise that capacity. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's a, it's a very interesting um, problem in animal psychology or, like, methodology of animal psychology. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, so if I can get someone to read from the section or subsection heading uh, instrumental mediation and read um, a page or so. We scared someone away by asking them to read. Uh, okay, I can read the next bit, but um, yeah, hopefully someone will um, take the take the lead uh, on the next uh, one after that. Okay, uh, subsection two, instrumental mediation. The recruitment of an object originally belonging to the external milieu is used as instrument and used as instrument was long considered, especially by philosophers and moralists, as a specific display of human intelligence, hence the label Homo faber, chosen to designate our species. The Stoics often reprised the following theme. Each animal species is endowed with specialized organs for defense, attack, shelter, construction, etc. Humans, by contrast, have neither organ tools, pincer or auger, nor innate operative knowledge to use them without prior learning. They must fashion tools and learn to use them. But the equipment and innate knowledge of animals is limited, given once and for all as a feature of the species, while human capacities are not limited. What at first represents an infirmity, a lack of inbuilt equipment, also ensures an ultimate superiority. Such ideas are found among Sophists and Lucretius, along with a more general idea of how progress is closely linked to inventive capacities and their impact on society. It was then a conspicuous commonplace for thought in antiquity, and it can even be found in mythology with Icarus and Prometheus. Yet the use of instruments does take place among animal species under condition, conditions which, at times, point to a stereotyped activity generally found among the various individuals of the species, and at other times are rarer and seem attributable instead to individual invention. invention. In 1905, the Peckhams observed a wasp, Ammophilia ornaria, tamping down the ground over its nest with a small rock held in its mandibles. Was this a case of individual invention? Minkiewicz, in 1933, observed solitary wasps in Poland performing the same operation with the scales of birch fruits, which implies a certain plasticity and adaptability to the parameters of the milieu in instrumental selection. In spite of this, Pierron considers that in such cases we cannot speak of invention, individual invention, but rather of an analogical conflation or instinctual extension. The maneuver is habitual to all members of the species which owns the recipe. The tropical red ant living in mango trees, Ecophila smaradina, um, brings several leaves together with six or seven ants pulling them, then glues them edge to edge using a thread secreting larva as shuttle. Ridley, Dauphine, Bignon, and Hingston have observed this construction of nests made of leaves in other ant species of the genus Polyrachis or, or the Camponotus senex. There, too, this behavior involving the use of a living being as tool or instrument is a species-wide recipe enabling a collective behavior with a division of labor. 
Some workers keep the leaves in place edge to edge while others manipulate the larvae. We can thus speak of organization, but not of individual invention, even if there is a use of instrumental mediation similar to that in human artisanal activity. Lanciot and Roussy have noted the way some spiders use a small pebble as a web tensing weight when a lower anchoring thread could not be attached for lack of available support points. This case is comparable to the various instrumental uses cited above, yet it arises in conditions in which the instrument replaces as a fragment attached from other objects an opportunity the situation could have afforded could have offered on its own. A small pebble brought in corresponds to a reorganization of the milieu. This case establishes a continuity between simple organizations, tamping of soil or digging, and the use of an instrument detached from the milieu and reattached to the organism as a prosthesis. Vekela studied the use of instrumental mediations among monkeys in situations where, unable to reach a goal directly, for, for instance, a fruit suspended high above in the cage, these animals either used connected sticks, the end of one embedded in another, or a scaffolding of boxes or a ladder provided in their cage with other objects. The observed behavior implements a perceptual selection with long objects, a plank or stick, recruited first as instruments. The construction of an instrument per se requires a higher capacity of integration and a prior experience of manipulation. Only higher primates who spontaneously manipulate sticks placed at their disposal before any finalized behavior succeed later in embedding the segments of sticks to resolve the problem of the fruit suspended above the cage. We might say that in such a case it is the image of the embedding as perceptual motor reality that is recruited at the moment of difficulty, and that the use of the instrument to be re reconstructed is discovered through a mental image already constituted during open learning, comparable to an exploration for structuring the territory. We witness here the importance of the role played by the spontaneity of behaviors initially containing motor components, need for exploration, manipulation play, that serve as systems for the reception of perceptual data. It is through these motor components that an active mental image is constituted and can serve as a solution for a problem. A mere perceptual investigation when the problem is presented does not lead to selecting objects as mediators, but without adequate discernment, sorry, uh, a mere perceptual investigation when the problem is presented does lead to selecting objects as mediators, but without adequate discernment of their complex operative properties. Hence, assembled boxes or a ladder given to monkeys are chosen for their perceptual qualities as scaffolding components, but without respect for the rules of equilibrium in their stacking or wedging against a wall, which would correspond to forcible embedding of the sticks. The monkey indifferently places a small box on a larger one uh, than the reverse. It places the ladder vertically against the wall without slanting it. If the monkey reaches the goal in these conditions, it is by using these objects as momentary support to jump rather by climbing, rather than by climbing, I think it should say, which requires the mechanical conditions of stable equilibrium. Instrumental invention requires not only a perception, but also a complete mental image forged by the motor components involved in manipulation and exploration. Right, so here we have sort of the next stage of um, uh, invention, which is using uh, an instrument outside of um, the organism's body. So um, some of these simple cases are like you have, so the, the ones the, uh, that Köhler had studied um, in apes, uh, you have the, the animal is in a cage, um, and there's something that the animal wants, uh, a piece of fruit or food of some kind that is um, at the top of the cage and the animal can't reach it. Um, and then there are a bunch of objects in the cage and some of those objects are useful or could be useful if they're um, used in the right way. Um, so there's like sticks that you can sort of um, clamp into each other. Um, and if you do it the right way, then you have a, a, a stick that's long enough to, um, to reach the fruit hanging at the top of the cage or there are boxes that you can stack on top of each other. Um, 
or in some cases a, a ladder. Uh, so there's different you know versions of this experiment, and um, it turns out that the apes are only able to solve this problem um, if they have previously played with the objects. So if you just like throw them into the cage and there's a bunch of objects and there's the fruit that they want to get at the top of the cage, they, they uh, can't solve the problem. They can't figure out, okay, I need to stock these boxes and then I can climb up on top and, and reach the, the fruit. But if they have previously explored these objects, if they've um, gone around and stacked boxes and you know, tried to climb them and things like that, um, then when they reach the situation where the fruit is at the top of the cage and they can't reach it, they sort of understand, okay, now I can do the, the same thing as I did earlier. You know, I can stock these boxes or I can um, clamp these sticks into each other and, uh, and I can reach the fruit. Um, so this sort of um, undirected behavior of play or manipulating the objects with no particular goal uh, is, is a sort of um, exploratory prerequisite for um, the goal-directed behavior, the actual uh, invention process of um, you know, realizing that this object can be used uh, to bring about, um, to, to reach the goal that they're trying to get to. Uh, so uh, again, so, this, so Simon Do compares this to the exploration of the territory. So in the same way that the animal has to explore its territory before it's capable of performing a detour on that territory, uh, likewise, the animal has to um, explore what um, what the properties of these objects are, how they interact with each other, how they fit together, and so on, uh, before it's capable of inventing um, the use of this object to achieve a goal. Yeah, in the case of these ants, it's especially interesting. Yeah, so Angus has posted some uh, uh, pictures in the chat here of some of these ants that um, that like sew leaves together, um, like. Yeah, ants in general have like pretty fascinating behavior. Um, there are some ants that um, that essentially um, cultivate a certain kind of fungus. They they grow it in their um, nests. Um, so they like you know feed it and um, you know collect it from outside and bring it into their nests and so on. Um, um, yeah. Anyway, so ants like you know use a variety of uh, instruments or elements of the environment. They use them to bring about a goal um the the question is always though like to what extent is this um a real invention on the part of an individual ant or a, a colony of ants or is this um a sort of instinctual behavior is this something that is sort of pre-programmed that the ant um you know will will perform this type of behavior um and it's always difficult especially with something like an ant it's always hard to demonstrate that this is like a, an invention in the sense of a novel behavior um, as opposed to something that's sort of predetermined, um, but um, so it's it's much easier in the case of an ape to get it to figure out. Okay, I need to stack these uh, boxes to get to the banana, um, as opposed to with ants, it's much harder to you know get them to perform uh, novel behaviors uh, that um, as opposed to ones that are typical of their species. Uh, Sixty one. I see you unmuted. Are you uh, ready to read a passage for us? Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, are we at a, an adjacent problem? Yes, exactly. Okay. An adjacent problem to that of the instrument used to reach a goal is that of the instrument used to pull an object beyond direct reach, especially with the aid of a string or thread attached to that object with or without obstacles or cage bars that make the processing of relations more complex. 
Birhent de Han found goldfinches capable of resolving this problem on the first attempt, while others needed to learn the maneuver. Earhart states that such traction actions are routinely used in the natural living conditions of several species of birds, such as tits and goldfinches, as well as the action of jamming a fruit into the hollows of bark to eat it among nuthatches. Bullfinches proceed similarly to break open pinecone scales, and gulls and ravens break hard shells by dropping them from high above rocks. In a certain sense, there is a continuity between detour, instrument recruitment from the milieu, and indirect behavior such as that of a bird lifting a hard shell in the air and letting it go so it will break on rocks. Such indirect behaviors abound in the operative modes of various species. I have witnessed the European red ant make use of gravity to move loads. Rather than carrying them one by one from a wooden plank five feet from the ground, the ants successively threw the loads. They were in fact ant corpses, then climbed down to the ground to complete transportation after having unhooked a few dead ants stuck on wood fibers at the edge of the cut plank. However, the ant did not recuperate a number of corpses which, diverted by the wind, fell on a table rather than on the ground. This behavior is akin to that of the discovery of a shortcut, since the total length of travel in the labor time was reduced by a factor of 15 compared to up and down round trips. But is this an individual invention or a species-wide behavior? Certainly it is a behavior finely adapted to the situation, effective, quick, and expedient, although it leads to a certain waste in the load. But I haven't been able to conduct sufficient observations to determine whether the use of freefall to lower loads is spread among ants. In all likelihood, this was a perfectly individual behavior and outside the anthill, which proves that behaviors we might call, with, with reference to human norms of task management, ingenious, are not merely collective among insects. Yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, this is um, the next sort of stage of the problem-solving uh, I don't know, hierarchy, I guess we could say. Um, so it's it's not just that you, so the, the simple um, sort of first stage is to um, take an object uh, like a, a bunch of boxes and stack them up in a way that gets you closer to the goal. Um, this is a slightly more complicated task in that you use an object of some kind to bring the goal closer to you. Um, so you have to, so in this case, it's like pulling something on a string, for example. Um, so it's, uh, it's somewhat more complicated because you have to understand the, um, relationship between the string and the food or whatever the goal is, um, and, and yourself. And you have to realize, okay, if I pull on this string, then I can get the goal. Um, and, uh, so he points out here that, um, this behavior is something that obviously, is, you know, uh, objects with strings on them is a sort of unnatural um, phenomenon. It's not like in the wild, uh, most animals don't encounter this, but um, there are similar behaviors that certain birds will, will do. They will um, uh, use elements of the environment to make the goal more reachable. Um, and, and so he talks about, um, for example, um, gulls and ravens that will pick up shells of uh, mollusks, uh, you know, clams or whatever, and uh, fly up in the air and then drop them onto the rocks. And then when the shell breaks, they get to the animal inside. Um, and there's, I think, I think it was in Japan, um, there's some crows that have figured out that they can um, put a, a shell, uh, you know, a clam or something on the road and then wait for a car to drive over it and then um, get to the, the clam inside. Um, 
And uh, there's been like, you know, this is sort of famous now about like crows and how, how smart they are. Um, so I, I posted something in the, the chat here. Um, there's a clip of, um, there's a, so it's not, so this task for the crows, um, I think they were New Guinea crows, if I remember correctly. Um, they, they had to um, not just use a string to pull on something to bring it to themselves, but they had to um, use a stick to uh, use a small stick to pull a, a bigger stick and then use the bigger stick to grab a piece of meat. Um, so they had to figure out uh, not just the relationship between the um, the piece of meat and like a string or something that they can pull on, but they had to figure out the relationship between um, like, you know, if I had a, a stick, I could grab the meat and here's a stick, but I can't reach the stick. But here's another stick that I can use to grab the first stick. Um, so they have to figure out all, the, all of these relationships at the same time uh and and so this is uh you know a much more sophisticated uh problem solving task than just stocking some boxes so that you can reach the banana um uh and um yeah so i think there's been more and more research of on on crows and and uh other corvids other birds in the same uh family um that um yeah they're capable of these sort of um intellectual detours so it's similar to the detour behavior where you actually sort of um move your whole body in a in a direction that takes you temporarily away from the goal but now it's an intellectual detour you have to um figure out um you know the relationship between different elements of the environment and determine that um doing this thing that doesn't seem uh, initially to help you at all in your goal in reaching your goal it actually is necessary to um because of the way these elements of the environment are connected to each other if you perform this task, which seems irrelevant, it actually does get you closer to the goal. Uh, and then we have also this interesting observation of the ants. Um, so this is something that Simon Don is reporting on his own um, observation. So there's a bunch of ants um, um, that are trying to bring um, dead ants back to the nest, I guess. Or um, um, anyway, they're they're on a piece of wood that's. Um, uh, up in the air, five feet above the ground, um, and they, what they could do is pick up each individual uh, dead ant and um, uh, bring them all the way down, like carry them from the the board down whatever supports it's on, and then walk all the way to the to the um, to the nest. But what Simon Dong observes them doing instead is just throwing them off the edge of the of the board and then climbing down and um, and picking up the the bodies, um, uh, you know, on the ground, and then carrying them to the nest. So th this uh, behavior allows them to um, skip having to um, drag the body all the way down the the whatever structure is is supporting this piece of wood. Um, uh, instead, they just use the the force of gravity to drop the body where they want it. And and so Simondon points out that some of the bodies get blown away by the wind. Um, so they lose a, a certain amount of what they were trying to carry, but um, um, it's sort of a, a trade-off between that and the energy that would be required to drag them all the way. So there's like, um, uh, it's a, a sort of engineering problem of like, you know, which um, which task, like, is it more important to ensure that you um, collect every body or is it more important to save energy on the dragging? Um, and so in this situation, they, the ants, in effect, opted to uh, lose some of the 
load that they were carrying um, in exchange for saving energy on the dragging operation. Uh, and so uh, Simon Dong suggests, I mean, he, he doesn't sort of say this conclusively, but he suggests that this is um, a kind of individual problem-solving behavior on the, on the part of the ants. Um, it doesn't seem like this is a, a sort of pre, um, pre-structured behavior that the ants do um, universally or that the species of ant does uh, universally. Um, it's not something that um, the ants already had like hardwired into them. Uh, they, they sort of evaluated a situation and um, you know, found uh, a way of reconciling the um, um, sort of uh, disparate elements of the situation and um, saving energy. Uh, and, and so in a, in a human um, engineer or um, technician or whatever, we would re- recognize this as a, a creative uh, way of solving a problem. Um, and so Simon Dome is suggesting that we should do the same in the case of these ants. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, if I can get someone to read. Uh, yeah, we can read up to the next uh, subsection break, please. I can read. The most common argument against calling these accomplishments among animals, quote-unquote, inventions, maintains that such behaviors are widely found across the species. This is what Pierron calls a species-wide recipe. If the behavior is stereotyped, it is indeed not an invention, yet the fact that a behavior is encountered often within a species does not prove that it does not result from a multitude of concurring and parallel inventions. The extreme complexity of the conditions of human action means that inventions are usually signaled by a dispersion of operative modes, while the use of a learned formula, a recipe, leads to uniformity. Yet if we take into account the leaner framework and far more limited action systems of most animal species, the uniformity of operative modes does not prove the absence of an invention process, since the number of possibilities is limited. This is why it is reasonable to consider as a criterion of inventive adaptation a response through organized and economical behavior to random factors arising during the execution of a task, either using them if favorable or neutralizing them if unfavorable. The problem of the capacity for invention among animals coincides here with their intelligence. Observations and experiments have been conducted, particularly by Fabra, on burying beetles trying to bury a mole tied by the experimenter to a stick that prevents it from being lowered. The beetles end up surfacing to assess the situation, discover the string, and cut it. Vio comments on this experiment, which he sees contrary to Fabre, as a sign of intelligence in the beetles' reaction. Vio adds observations he conducted in the Alsatian plain on burying beetles, trying to bury a vole in ground crevices, exploring the shape of the crevice before orienting it, and slanting the flattened corpse of the vole so that it better slides into the properly sized crevice. In human life as in animal life, there is a constant necessity to confront the partial novelty of situations with an activity of organization of operative modes. The richer and more precise the mental image of the situation, the higher are the chances of discovering an adequate organization. The simplest invention is that which bears on operative modes because there is homogeneity among the modes, which involve motor schemas and the representation of the problem. The discovery of practical solutions of praxis is very much analogous to the simplifications and structurations arising during learning. For a problem to be solved, it must first be posed in coherent, that is, homogeneous terms. 
belonging to a single system, the same axiomatic, operative modes with their motor content constitute by themselves the most elementary axiomatic, uh, which has no need of being constructed since it is given by the organism. But it is still necessary that all of the terms of the problem have been converted into operative terms, so that a distance between objects would be a path effectively taken. And a mass is something that has already been lifted with a given effort or has resisted efforts of moving it. This is why the condition for concrete inventions is prior exploration, manipulation, and organization of the territory in which the problem will arise and the instruments of a solution will be found. Throughout this activity, there are translations into homogeneous operative terms of the dimensions and properties of things, as though in an implicit algebra, the felt relations of objects with capacities for action perform the most primitive formalizations. This um, point that he makes about the distinction between the species-wide recipe and genuine invention, kind of interesting in light of what we were talking about before the call, before we started recording, uh, about practical reason and um, rule following. It seems like uh, if there is something like an instinctive recipe, then if there is a novel enough interruption of the instinctive behavior, the a solution to the problem presented by the interruption would be invention if it um, if the I guess if the behavior is if it's the uh, obstacle is actually resolved. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you can have like I mean, in most sort of animal behavior experiments, you're still relying on the animal to present some sort of um, instinctive behavior, if you want to use that term, um, like. For example, you present the animal with food that it likes or that it would normally eat. You don't give, I don't know, hay to uh, a dog or uh, a cat or whatever. You give it meat or something that it would eat in a, a normal setting. Um, um, uh, and so you you have to sort of align with the animal's behaviors in, in, a, in a normal setting um, in order to even conduct the experiment in the first place. Uh, but um, you can take that sort of uh, species-typical behavior and um, present a sort of obstacle to the effectuation or to, to the reaching of a goal, um, and then that requires the animal to not just perform this sort of pre, um, pre-established recipe or this um, uh, preset behavior, but it has to um, sort of have an understanding of the situation and uh and you know find a way of you know taking the goal and the obstacle and and sort of figuring out what the relationship of these two things is to each other and overcoming the obstacle uh like these ones these examples with the beetles are pretty interesting because i mean we don't think of beetles or insects in general as being especially intelligent um but um here like you have these beetles that um i don't know exactly what species of beetle but like um that seem to have this um, species typical behavior of burying um, dead animals, uh, presumably so that they can eat the the um, decaying flesh later on. Um, but in this instance, the animal is um, suspended on a string, and uh, and so when they start digging underneath the animal, it doesn't fall like it normally would. Uh, yeah, burying beetle, interesting. Um, 
uh, yeah, so the animal doesn't fall into the ground, into the hole that they're digging in the way that it normally would. So the 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 sort of typical behavior is just you dig underneath this animal and then it starts it sinks into the ground and then eventually you you can sort of bury it. Um, but uh, in this case, the, they they start digging underneath the the carcass and it doesn't fall into the hole. Uh, and then after a while, they they stop digging and they realize okay, there's something that's gone wrong or something is not normal here. They do some investigation and they find the string and then they cut the string and then everything proceeds as normal. So, um, yeah, they, they, you know, whatever exactly, you know, representation of the problem they have, um, I mean, presumably not a sort of sophisticated knowledge of um, the action of gravity or something, but they, they figured out that the string is the sort of obtrusive element here, that the string is what is preventing the normal behavior from proceeding uh, the way it should. Uh, and then once they eliminate the string as a, an obstacle, then they can sort of perform their normal behavior. Um, and so here, uh, like this phenomenon of being suspended on a string is clearly not uh, a typical, it's not something that they have a preset recipe for. Um, they, they have to have some sort of grasp uh, you know, of where the obstacle is, of why things are not proceeding as normal. Uh, and, you know, it might be sort of an accidental, uh, they probably didn't have, um, um, you know, a, a sophisticated understanding of like, you know, the way that strings will hold objects uh, suspended, suspended in the air. Um, they might have just sort of figured out the string is, is weird and not normal. And they just sort of attack the string that is um, uh, the, the obtrusive element in the situation. Uh, and then eventually just sort of by accident, they and end up solving the problem um but um yeah it's uh um it's still a sort of sophisticated behavior of being able to um figure out you know which element of the situation it actually is the obstacle to being able to perform the species typical behavior uh so yeah so i think that's um again it, it's always difficult to determine just how sophisticated how much um actual understanding of a situation an animal is exhibiting when it performs a certain behavior. Like in this case, we clearly would not want to attribute um, uh, sort of an understanding of what, of how strings um, counteract the force of gravity or something along those lines to the beetles. Um, they, they're most likely just sort of randomly trying different things until one thing works. Um, but um, we still want to, you know, attribute at, at least the capacity to recognize that the situation is not proceeding as normal and they need to try something different, um, which is already uh, a sort of intellectual detour. Um, if, we, if we sort of considered them to be like sort of mechanically um, proceeding, they would just keep digging and digging and never realize, okay, the, the uh, corpse of this animal is not actually sinking into the ground the way it should. Um, so yeah, they, they are capable of recognizing uh, when things are not going wrong or are not going well and um, how to sort of explore the, the situation and uh, find the, the point where things are uh, with sort of the bottleneck of the situation. Where, where is it that things are um, going wrong? This bit about beetles, um, it's sort of off topic, but it reminds me of a famous line from Darwin that you probably a lot of people have heard, but like someone asked him, like, what can we learn about the creator um, from examining the creation, and he says he seems to have an inordinate fondness for beetles um, because there's like I, I think there's more species of beetles than there are any other um, 
form of insect or something like that. Um, but uh, anyway, there's like hundreds of thousands of species of beetles. Um, and uh, yeah, so these are animals that, uh, again, we don't consider to be like especially, um, especially uh, you know, intelligent or sophisticated in, in various ways. Um, but even something simple like, you know, investigating why the corpse of the animal is not sinking into the ground and, you know, finding the problem is already um, exhibiting a, a, a certain amount of sophistication. Um, and, uh, yeah, it requires some sort of understanding of the situation. Right. Uh, so we're kind of losing people, but I'm going to suggest we read one more, this this one last subsection, and then that'll take us to the section break, and then we end there for today, if that works for everyone. Okay. Um, 61, do you want to read? Sure. Okay, so that number three, right? Okay. Yes, exactly. The properties, one second. Okay. The properties common to detour and instrumental mediation. Both of these cases concern the selective recruitment of certain data from past experience by the present representation of the concrete goal to be reached. Invention as an organization is in this respect a detour through the past. In past experience, in the course of explorations and manipulations, relations were established sometimes fortuitously, between the organism and the object constituting the goal. In a problematic situation characterized by discontinuity, the proximity of the goal and the intensity of the motivation create a strong slope, an important gradient field that interacts with a whole population of images condensing past experience. This interaction between the field of finality, that is, the gradient of the goal of the anticipated action, and the field of experience, leads paradoxically to a simple situation, but intense because of the tension towards a goal that is near, that of modulating a population of mental images bearing the results of explorations and manipulations that have required a very lengthy and complex activity. An organization occurs because the simplest and smallest structure, a goal to be reached in the present situation, governs a larger and more complex set of with a weaker gradient. This condition is formally the same as that of an amplification through interaction between fields. If learning processes were as forcefully polarized as problematic situations, then an organizing invention would not be possible because its condition, namely the amplifying recruitment of images already previously constituted by the problem's field of immediate finality, would lack its basic condition, that is, a gain superior to unity, thanks to a coupling as, irre as irreversible as that between the present and the past. For amplification to exist, the images condensing past experience must be as close as possible to a neutral state without being entirely neutral, since then they would no longer offer any purchase on the field of modulation developed by the finalizing situation. We can understand then why violently stimulating sim situations, such as intense emotions, ex excesses of reward or of punishment, do not leave easily usable, mobile, and combinable images for a later problematic situation, whereas disinterested learning, which is weakly polarized, optimally prepares inventive organization. In order for invention to have the best chance of arising, what is required is an alternation between long durations in which activity is weakly motivated and weakly finalized, free exploration and manipulation, and short durations with high goal gradients or problematic situations. We may call a gain the ratio of measure of these durations entering into a relation of interaction and finding an equilibrium as fields of experience and of finality within the problematic situation. 
It is then not solely the association of memories or the evocation of mental images that enables an organizing invention. If a present image developed by the finalizing situation triggers a single image from the past that carries an experience, an image sufficiently polarized to balance and neutralize the present image, the ratio is one-to-one, which means there is no amplification. Overly accentuated images do not enable invention, but only iteration and preservation. For images to be instruments of invention, conforming to the finalized situation where they organize themselves, they must be in a state close to neutrality while remaining weakly charged. This state of weak polarization corresponds to the end result of the process of saturation described above, which which occurs after the experience of the object. A strongly polarized image of a scheme or project or fear of desire cannot be the material for a practical invention bearing on reality, but only the content of phantasm. Images that express the desire to fly have hardly contributed to the invention of the airplane. The most modest of practical inventions is also the result of an act of amplification, which profits in only a few instants from a long and scarcely finalized learning, producing mobile and detachable images following the lines of force of field of finality. Right, this bit is a bit dense um, compared to some of the earlier parts, uh, but the the sort of basic idea here, as far as I understand, is that um, there has to be uh, a sort of um, weakly goal-directed um, structure of a situation um, to allow for the sort of mobility of the images uh, in learning. So, for example, um, the case of the cat that couldn't figure out how to um, go around the spiral, uh, you know, traveling from the inside to the outside. Um, in this situation, the attraction to the food or the, the whatever the goal is, was too strong to allow the cat to um, um, travel around the loop of the spiral in the direction away from the goal. Um, and, and so in this situation, uh, it's this, um, the, the situation is structured too strongly in, or is too sort of, uh, goal-directed, too strongly goal-directed for the cat to, um, learn how to reach the goal. Uh, whereas in other situations where the cat might, or whatever the animal is, um, doesn't have this same sort of a very strong uh, goal-directed sort of uh, structure of the situation. So the cat might just play with um, uh, a piece of string or whatever, um, or some sort of object in the environment. It might sort of use it and manipulate it without any particular goal in mind. Um, And then later on, it can sort of um, use that manipulation of the object uh, without a goal, it can sort of re- rely on the images of that object, the motor and visual and et cetera images, um, to allow it to solve a problem where it does have a, a goal directed um, um, or, or it does have a strong uh, direction towards a goal. Uh, so, so there has to be both, on the one hand, the, um, the prior exploratory behavior with no particular goal or with only limited amount of um, finality in the situation or directedness towards a goal. Uh, And then there also has to be the problem, the setting where there is a a goal to be reached. And um, and, uh, there has to be a sort of conjunction of these two elements for learning and problem solving to happen. Um, And so Simon Don points out that um, this sort of strong desire, even in humans, the, the strong desire to solve, to, you know, reach a certain goal 
um, is in some cases, and uh, uh, in some cases, it interferes with the problem-solving process. So this desire to fly um, produces all sorts of fantasies of flight, of you know, transforming into a bird or whatever. Um, but it um, mostly doesn't really get you any closer to you know the problem or to the solution of um, building an airplane. Uh, that required, of course, all sorts of um, prior technical inventions of the the internal combustion motor and so on. Um, so there's uh, uh, again this sort of capacity to um, explore the terrain, whether you know actually physically um, the territory in which the animal lives, or uh, sort of intellectual terrain. Um, this kind of low motivation behavior is uh, a prerequisite for the capacity to solve a problem in a high motivation setting. This section is really interesting, but as you mentioned, really dense. Um, but this idea of the ratio that um, present image developed by the finalizing situation triggers a single image from the past that carries an experience. The image sufficiently polarized to balance and neutralize the present image. The ratio is one to one, which means there's no amplification. So would amplification here be the correspondence of a series of low polarization past images to the high polarization future goal image. And in that case, maybe, I mean, I'm trying to think if this, if we can like think of that kind of amplification um, in terms of, you know, like the crystal propagating through the milieu where the milieu here would be the, the group of low polarized past images um, and the seed would correspond to the high intensity goal, but it's pretty big. Yeah. Um, so I think, so the one, the passage that you just read, the part where he, he talks about the ratio being one-to-one. -one. So this is the situation where there's um, not, there hasn't been an appropriate uh, learning um, uh, uh, sort of low intensity series. Um, so, like the uh so in the case where you um have i don't know this very strong desire to fly and then you sort of the this one image of a bird's flight um comes to mind and you sort of you're stuck on this one image of um you know the desire to fly just brings up this image of a bird's flight um then you're not going to realize that you actually have to build an airplane to be able to fly you're going to sort of try to come up with a device that allows you to flap your arms like a bird's wings or something like that, you're, you're going to go down the wrong path. Um, uh, and so, so this is in, in this situation, the ratio is one to one uh, in the sense that there's no amplification of the, um, uh, of the, the, uh, the image doesn't amplify your capacity to operate uh, and to reach your goal. Whereas in the situation where you have had this pre- um, prerequisite exploration, there is an amplification. Um, so it's it, the the situation doesn't just call up one image that you sort of get fixated on or stuck on. It calls up a whole series of images where you've explored um, the properties of your territory or the properties of the objects that you find in your situation. Um, and it, it, it calls up not just like the the sort of um, objective properties, but what you can do with those objects, and then you realize, oh, if I, you know, I, I I've taken these boxes and um, uh, you know stacked them together before, and 
if I do that now, then I can reach the banana. Um, it's it's this sort of um, yeah connection. Yeah. So in the case of the flight example, you would have like um, you know this sort of pre-existing exploratory knowledge, and not even just of one person, but of a whole society of you know internal combustion engine metallurgy to to d develop the um, materials that are strong enough to um, uh, strong and light enough to um, you know build an airplane uh, yeah aerodynamics all these other sort of elements of knowledge and of technical capacity that all have to come together to build this device that doesn't look at or function anything like a, a bird does um, and uh, and so this um, all these different aspects of the situation so the this desire to fly, has to elicit or call up all of these different elements of the situation, uh, all, all this sort of pre uh, prerequisite knowledge and and technical capacity. Um, it has to bring all of that to bear on the problem, as opposed to just like the one image of a bird flying. Uh, and so it's in that sense that it the situation amplifies the capacity to act and to reach the goal. And so this, like in the case of the cat that um, can't solve the spiral maze problem, we can say that um, the the cat is sort of fixated on the image of, you know, heading in the direction of the food. Um, it it just has this one sort of image of like, you know, here's the food, here's the direction I need to travel. And it can't, um, it can't sort of uh, combine that with its prior knowledge of the um, structure of the spiral maze and figure out, okay, I need to actually move away from the food so that I can go around a loop of the spiral and that will actually get me closer to my goal. Um, uh, so again, this very strongly affectively charged um, or polarized situation doesn't allow for the cat to um, uh, sort of uh, uh, figure out the structure of the situation, use its, its um, knowledge of the uh, structure of the environment in such a way as to uh, amplify its capacity to reach the goal. Yeah, and then, and then there's the bit that we haven't really talked about is the the bit about the past um, that he right at the beginning of this section. So there's a kind of detour into the past is how he puts it, right? So you, um, in, in a situation where you have to solve a problem, you are not just, um, you're not just uh, taking a detour in uh, the present situation, but you're detouring through your past experience of the territory, of the objects um, that you've played with in the past. Um, you're you're sort of um, going back into your your um, past experience and all the images that you've collected in that experience, motor images, um, visual images, etc. Um, and then you're you're taking that detour um, to come up with a new path that um, you hadn't perceived before or that you didn't realize was there. Um, and so this is, uh, uh, it's in this sense that um, invention is a detour through the past because you have to, um, yeah, use the, the past experience uh, in that low polarization setting um, as a way to uh, find uh, this amplificatory response to this high polarization situation. Okay, uh, so if there's no other, um, or sorry, Angus, did you have a, a question or comment? No, I was just going to say, so I was confused at first about the this emphasis on the difference in polarization, but I guess the point is that um, if the polarization of the future image is too similar to the polarization of the past, of a given past image, then um, it would be 
either a one-to-one correspondence or closer to a one-to-one correspondence, but it's because you need, it's because if the past images have a lower polarization, you need more of them to correspond to the higher polarization of the future image. I mean, I guess that's kind of metaphorically what he's, what he's saying here that um, no one sort of item that you've learned in the past would be sufficient to uh, achieve the end goal or like make the future image present. Um, You need the, I guess the combination of all of them, which would be what he means by amplification. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I mean, obviously there's like um, what exactly this quantity that's being amplified is, is, um, somewhat vague here, but um, yeah, there's a certain equilibrium of like this very powerful um, image of a future state of you know me eating the banana or whatever the situation is, um, which is you know very polarized uh, towards a, a particular goal state, um, and then uh, to sort of counterbalance this future image, you need um, the whole sort of knowledge of or the whole set of images, the whole um, uh, experience that arose through uh, exploration or this low polarization behavior um, in relation to the environment. So, um, yeah, it's like there's a certain, I guess, trade-off between quantity and intensity here that, like, uh, a low-intensity image um, to, in order to counterbalance a high-intensity image, you need lots of low-intensity images. uh, And then... uh, uh, so in the situation where you have um, a high-intensity future image uh, of eating the banana and it gets sort of fixated on just one high-intensity past image, then you don't have this amplificatory process of um, um, allowing the whole experience of the situation to um, to come to bear on the problem and sort of bring about a solution. Yeah, it's all about getting the banana. That's what Fichte was writing about when he talks about the primacy of the practical is how to get a banana. That's why they kicked him out of Yena. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Um, yeah, so thanks everyone for coming out. Uh, we're going to stop here for today. Um, so we'll pick up next time from uh, so, uh, from section B uh, on page 152. Uh, okay, so thanks again and uh, see you. Uh, let me see. Uh, yes, I think I can do next week, but it might be a short session next week. I have to figure that out. Uh, That sounds good. Thanks, 961.